On the 24th of May 2011, a 73-year-old doctor joined a protest outside of the Syrian embassy in Washington. He'd left Syria 40 years earlier. Now he wanted to show his support for the reforms that protesters back home had started demanding so loudly and passionately just weeks earlier. And it so happened that he, together with four other protesters, was invited into the embassy to meet with the ambassador himself to discuss the issues, supposedly. Just a few hours after the meeting, the doctor received word from his brother back in Syria. The Mukhabarat had been at his doorstep. They wanted to warn him that his, quote, American brother was, quote, causing trouble in the USA. A few weeks earlier, in the UK this time, another Syrian was invited into the embassy he was protesting in front of. This Syrian ambassador assured him that the attacks on his city that he heard of were all media lies. Meanwhile, he noticed someone was secretly taking pictures of him. Around the same time, a family in Syria received a visit from the Mukhabarat. They were presented with a picture of their family member at a demonstration back in the US. Tell your boy not to bring snakes into the family nest. These are all examples from a 2011 report from Amnesty International, which details the experiences of members of the Syrian diaspora. As the uprising began, they took to the streets in solidarity with their fellow Syrians back home. They protested in the US, the UK, France, Germany, Sweden, and many more countries. Countries with high standards of free speech and other civil liberties. After all, for some diasporas, moving to a different country offers new opportunities for advocacy. You're less likely to be forcibly disappeared by the Muhabarat in a country like England than you are in Syria. And yet, all these people in the report suffered consequences. Their families back in Syria were interrogated, abused, and monitored. Their social media feeds were hacked. Somehow, the Syrian regime found them wherever they were. In this episode, we will be exploring what Amnesty International at the time called the long reach of the Mukhabarat. We will be looking at the limitations of escape and to what extent a Syrian refugee actually finds refuge in other countries. It's a widely underreported and challenging topic. Even still, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that 10 years and thousands of miles from Syria later, Syrians abroad are still being blackmailed, intimidated and threatened. A report issued by the EU's Asylum Support Office as recently as June of 2021 confirms it. Ten years later, Syrians all over the world still get phone calls with demands or warnings. For some, fleeing the country was not enough. Even those Syrians who aren't directly targeted by shadowy figures aligned with the regime, even they can never really escape, simply because of the fact that a number of Assad's henchmen live among them. In sleepy German villages, in cities in the Netherlands, their oppressors have become their neighbors. Many lay low, moving through life in anonymity. But then some still honor their loyalty to Assad, gathering information, monitoring, and reporting on their fellow countrymen. What is it like to live like that? To live in fear? even after you have settled in a new country. What is the reality behind the reports? There is no one answer to this. 
even if there was one. It would be, it depends. However, a recent investigation published in a renowned Dutch national newspaper, NRC, does shed some light on this question, at least on the situation for Syrians in the Netherlands. And so we will look at the Netherlands for now as a sort of case study. First, let's talk about scale. The Dutch article focuses on the Netherlands, but it does suggest that potentially hundreds of regime loyalists with varying degrees of blood on their hands are currently living in Western Europe. After 2011, when the regime violence escalated, some felt that things were heating up too much, and many of them entered Europe, dispersed and dissolved into a new society. We're talking specifically about Shabiha here. Shabiha are members of pro-regime militias, not army officials, not intelligence agents, but state-funded groups of men who do Assad's dirty work. They drag opposition figures from their homes and beat up protesters. Shabiha perpetrate the kind of violence that led many Syrians to flee in the first place. Crimes against humanity even, in some cases. The article features an interview with a Shabih who is thought to have recruited child soldiers. He speaks openly about his ties to the pro-regime militia, and he visited Syria as recently as 2019 to maintain his ties to the regime. You can imagine how distressing it is for Syrian refugees to be confronted with Shabiha. Unfortunately, Syrians in the Netherlands rarely report these people to the authorities, and even if they do, they are not guaranteed a response. Instead, they have created websites on which to identify and warn each other about potential perpetrators in their new country of residence to ward off potentially traumatic encounters. But the culture within the Syrian community in the Netherlands isn't naturally one of solidarity and support. If anything, a climate of distrust prevails among Syrians abroad, fueled by fear. You can never be sure of someone's history. And even if you are, maybe their past isn't in the past after all. Because just as there are Shabiha living anonymously in Europe, unpunished for horrible crimes and eager to remain that way, There is evidence to suggest that a section of the Syrian diaspora in the Netherlands coordinates with the Syrian authorities. They are the eyes and ears of the Assad regime. The presence of people who are in touch with the Syrian regime has a few notable effects on Syrians in the Netherlands. Firstly, it fosters this feeling of mutual distrust. Secondly, it stifles advocacy and activism. Fewer people dare to show up to demonstrations because they run the risk of being filmed by mysterious men. Thirdly, it means that dissenting voices are heard no matter where they are. There are known cases of people criticizing the regime only to then receive footage of their loved ones beating up back in Syria. And lastly, there are disturbing accounts of Syrians in the Netherlands receiving phone calls from unidentified men, blackmailing them, demanding large sums of money, or else their loved ones will get harmed. Practices like these are also called transnational repression, and it's something we actually know happens in more countries than just the Netherlands. Mohamed Abdullah is the executive director of the Syria Justice and Accountability Center, SJAC for short. SJAC is a Syrian-American NGO that works on issues relating to justice and accountability in the Syrian context. Mohammed believes that the situation in the Netherlands is not unique, and he has good reason to. 
In 2019, Esjak obtained and analyzed a batch of sensitive documents belonging to the Syrian regime. So in general, um, the documents were collected from two different periods of time uh, throughout the conflict. Um, the first batch was around 2013 to 2014, um, and the second was around 2015 2016. Later, we did extractions of our own where we got uh, almost exclusive access to documents from Idlib, but more importantly, honestly, from Raqqa, from Tel Abiyad, from the northeast area where... Um, no other documents were extracted from that area. Um, not all the documents are post-2011. Some of them belong to the prior to the conflict, and not all of them showing direct linkages to uh, war crimes or crimes against humanity. A lot of the documents are um, routine paperwork, bureaucratic processing, um, sometimes security uh, reports about some areas, nothing really special about them. Some of the documents provided proof that the Syrian authorities were spying on Syrians abroad, the embassies in both Spain and Saudi Arabia specifically. The embassies collecting names and the Syrian embassies abroad and sending them to Damascus. It's important that the documents showed that both these Syrian embassies operated similarly in such different countries. It supports the theory that this type of repression is widespread. It came from two different far apart countries, Saudi Arabia and Spain, where you cannot actually say um, these were like only the embassy in Saudi Arabia did this at their own because there's like their Arabic speaking or because uh, Saudi Arabia was against the government. No, clearly this is a systematic effort the embassies, Syrian embassies abroad are engaged in and they try to uh, collect as much as information um, about dissidents outside, about activities. This is what the Syrian embassies are doing. So embassies were, and to the extent that they still exist, continue to be extensions of Assad's security apparatus, useful tools to keep an eye on Syrians abroad. Many Syrian embassies around the world have closed since 2012, though. So what about other actors? Um, So the cell phone carriers, the landline phone services, basically any communication um, the communication Ministry of Communication is, is involved, um, clearly embassies, and without, say, the intelligence themselves, they basically they record and surveil everything. The Syrian government had at some point what's so-called um, Syrian Electronic Army, which is a group of hackers. Nobody is safe in the online sphere, and possibly that was one of the easy areas for the Syrian government to collect so much open source intelligence on people without knowing it. People check into airports, check into their locations, they post pictures with friends, so forth, so on. But uh, as what we know for documents, for personal experience, for hard evidence, like intelligence agencies, the cell phone carriers and the communication ministry, but also the embassies abroad. What Mohammed describes here is formal monitoring. It involves institutions such as the cell phone carriers and embassies. But the regime also relies on informal monitoring. This involves individuals reporting on each other to the intelligence services. There's a lot of uh, of Syrians abroad. And unfortunately, there's a history of of Syria. I'm not sure if if you're familiar with this expression or saying, like somebody has a nice handwriting. Usually that means like you write reports, you're an informant, you report to the intelligence. And it used to happen in handwriting before. And that's like when somebody refers somebody like, oh, they have nice handwriting. It's like they're reporting to the intelligence, basically. 
um, a lot of, of people who were arrested in Damascus airport or asked to report to intelligence upon arrival from like abroad, they were reported by their peers, by their classmates or roommates, Syrians studying with them outside. So recruiting members in the Syrian communities and diaspora, even before 2011, was a very active thing the Syrian intelligence did. Mohammed mentioned that the motivations of people who report on each other could be fueled by fear as much as anything else. Not necessarily the guys are necessarily bad, but like, hey, an incident happened in front of two people and every one of them is worried the other will report it and he will look the bad guy. So they end up both people reporting it. And that's why everybody abroad, that's why Syrians doesn't talk to each other when you live abroad. Like you don't want to talk to other Syrians because you either have to report them or they will report you to something. So nobody talks to anybody, nobody trusts anybody. It's, it's very isolated. Um, community and uh, the, the scale is, is really massive. The presence of people who cooperate with Syrian intelligence branches or who are intelligence officers themselves poses a real threat to Syrians abroad. A New Yorker article that was published in September 2021 described how a high-ranking intelligence officer named Khaled al-Halabi infiltrated a group of Syrians in Europe who are trying to set up civil society projects in rebel-held territory in Syria. He kept trying to find out things about them, their names, their activities, their phone numbers. Al-Halabi is believed to have been responsible for war crimes, including rape, torture, and murder. It's clear that the regime and its network of informants, agents, and institutions is particularly interested in stifling dissent. For that reason, it's often activists who are most at risk. I'm Ahmed Hilmi. I am a Syrian nonviolent activist and the human rights defender. Ahmed himself is a member of the Syrian diaspora. He knows that Assad's henchmen are active outside of Syria. They pose a risk to the safety of activists and of their loved ones back in Syria. It's definitely a valid point for, for activists because those Syrians who are still uh, in relation with the intelligence, they are writing reports back to Damascus, and sometimes they're even active in the country where they are in relation of uh, threats or at least bothering the, uh, the, uh, the activist. A risk that Ahmad is acutely aware of. Actually, I believe that the Syrian uh, regime is following closely uh, not only me, but all the activists, uh, all the Syrian activists around the world. Uh, but at, so far, I haven't uh, encountered any kind of this accidents, neither me or my family, nor my family. Uh, but I think there will be some day when uh, they will have the time to deal with those uh, people and then they will start, you know, like with the Syrian regime, nothing uh, passes with the time, nothing get, got, got forgotten. They record everything. So in some day they will uh, threat my family. They will, there will be threats on the safety and security of, of my, my family in Syria. It didn't happen yet. But I'm pretty sure that it will happen uh, once the Syrian uh, regime and intelligence have the time for that. We asked him how this belief affects his life. 
I mean, I have, um, like for me, I've, I've taken this decision to, to, to move on in this movement to, to fight for democracy, for human rights in Syria, uh, regardless of whatever the, the consequences will be. And I have informed my family about my decision since day one. I know there will be uh, risks, but I don't have the luxury to assist those uh, risks or to do anything about it because I can't stop like stopping the, the activism and, and advocacy and campaigning is not an option. It's, it's only a luxury. I don't have it. And for me, I have been through enough, like on, on my personal safety, I have been through enough. So nothing, nothing else scares me, uh, to be honest. I have been shooted by a sniper during one of the nonviolent uh, or the peaceful demonstrations. And I was, I've been also detained, tortured, enforceably disappeared for three years. So I think there is no much more they can do. And even if there is, I, I mean, I will try it, uh, but really, it's it's not about it's it's not about me. Like, what scares me the most is is my family. But as I told you, it's like stopping now is is a luxury. It will mean that everything I have been through and every lost, we, uh, my family, my community, Syria, have lost will go away. Will go like will go with the wind. We've learned that the reach of Assad's security apparatus affects activists. But how does it affect activism? Uh, actually, it's interesting how it's developed. Lots of survivors and activists that we contact, contact today on, or these days uh, for participation in advocacy or for participation in such kind of activities, they uh, mostly they are not willing to participate uh, unless uh, they are using fake names. And when it's come to participation in person, they will not because they are afraid that their face or voice will be recognized and that will be reported back to, to Damascus and Damascus will keep the record, etc., etc. But the interesting development here is before 2015, it was the opposite, you know, like people were had the courage and they were like not afraid of using their own names or participating in activities in advocacy and campaigning in person or uh, live or on, on media or on social media, etc. Because there was a chance or at least hope for Syrian people that the situation in Syria will change, that the Syrian regime uh, will change or will fall or uh, like we felt that they were weak, but now people that are, are seeing that the Syrian regime is regaining the power, regaining the control all over Syria. So people are more afraid now with, with, with every week pass, I feel that we, like we are losing more activists, more people are, 
are turning to be to be quiet, more quiet and more like less vocal. It was surprising to hear, of all people, an activist speaking so openly about disheartening facts like these. But Ahmed pointed out that activism is becoming increasingly dangerous, especially for people who have family in Syria, and not because of Assad's secret activities, but rather the legitimizing of the regime by others. He lays the blame for that, particularly with the international community. In October 2021, the American magazine Newsweek put a portrait of Assad on their cover with the bold headline, He's Back. And in Denmark, there has recently been a push to declare Syria safe to return to. And in the beginning of October 2021, Interpol, the global policing organization, let Syria back into its communications networks, a move which is especially dangerous for activists abroad. Lots of activists are really scared. Lots of even non-activists, victims and survivors and former activists they are scared that their legal situation, wherever they are in the EU or in other countries, will be jeopardized. We are still trying to assess the, the risk and, and how to deal with it, uh, but it will it will definitely affect, you know, like it might not lead to, to, to the arrest of, of me or other activists, but I think it might uh, at least affect uh, a visa application, asylum application. When the Syrian human rights lawyer Anwar al-Bunni went shopping in his local Turkish supermarket in Berlin in 2014, he spotted a man that he vaguely recognized, but couldn't immediately place. The penny dropped only later, when he mentioned the encounter to a friend. Anwar al-Bunni had of course spotted Anwar R. The reason we don't say his last name and haven't for the last one and a half years is because German authorities decided to persecute Anwar R. And he's now officially a defendant in a criminal procedure. And the reason we're making a podcast about it is because this German trial is the worldwide first criminal trial against regime officials. In the context of everything we've talked about today, it's worth pausing on that for a moment. The NRC article from the Netherlands argues that there are dozens of Shabiha living there and have been living there undisturbed for years. And yet, the first Dutch trial against regime officials, or Shabiha, has yet to start. So far, the Dutch authorities have been focused on jihadists, people who fought with groups like ISIS and al-Nusra. It's a testament to the different ways in which countries' authorities tackle the problem of Syrian regime presence within their borders. And a testament to the political will of different countries' governments because there probably are a lot of parallels between the plight of the Syrian community in the Netherlands and, say, Syrians in Germany and Sweden and France and so forth. But it's only in Germany and only in 2020 that we see case-building and investigations in these countries, resulting in a criminal trial against former regime officials, albeit against two relatively low-ranking accused. A 
At best, European countries are just slow because they are trying to be careful and precise. But there are hints of incompetence, indifference, and as some critics would argue, plain opportunism as well. Remember the Shabih living in the Netherlands that allegedly recruited minors for his militia? The reason why he agreed to do an interview with a Dutch national newspaper in the first place was because the Dutch immigration services already investigated him, but didn't take any action. And the intelligence officer accused of war crimes that the New Yorker wrote about? He was initially refused asylum in France because, according to the Refugee Convention, asylum can be denied to those suspected guilty of war crimes or crimes against humanity. However, according to the New Yorker article, he was whisked away to Austria with the help of Austrian and Israeli intelligence services. They saw him as an asset. He apparently ended up under Austrian protection, with a flat in Vienna and a 5,000 euro monthly stipend. In any case, many Syrian refugees who should be safe where they are, are not. And the efforts of the authorities of their new home countries to protect them too often fail the millions of survivors of oppression, persecution, torture, and violence. Yes, Koblenz is a step in the right direction. But what if the road is longer than we thought? What if it runs through our own backyard? Branch 251 is a 75-podcast production. Today's episode was hosted by Noor Hamade and Naya Skath. It was written, produced, and edited by me, Pauline Beek, with editorial help from Fritz Dreif and Noor Hamade. A big thanks to Mohamed Alabdallah for being so generous with his time and expertise. Special thanks to Ahmad Hemi for sharing with remarkable openness his experiences and views. Our special thanks also goes out to Esther Rosenberg and Melvin Ingleby from NRC for their in-depth reporting on this issue and to Mariana Karkutli for her insight. Support for our podcast comes from German Federal Foreign Office funds that are provided by IFAS Civic Funding Programme.